Jesse James is bigger than you can imagine. And you go to him wanting to be with him. Wanting to be like him. You'd always come away missing something. I know I won't get this one opportunity, and you can bet your life I'm not going to spoil it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of No Happy Endings. The film that Stephen Benedict and I are going to discuss is The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which is from 2007, starring Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck and Sam Shepard. And this is the favorite role that Brad Pitt has ever played, the favorite film that he's ever been in. And this is a really strange film in that it delves into the legend the myth of Jesse James right at the end of his spree of robberies. And the last robbery that James committed was a complete failure. So the rest of this film is really deconstructing the man from the myth and somebody who's so renowned for their ferocity with robbing trains and that sort of thing and all the men that he killed. It's really about him being hunted and the main person hunting him is maybe America's first celebrity stalker in Robert Ford. And it's, it's just such an interesting meditation on this horrible last phase of James having nowhere to go, being cornered, having to lie to his own family. And I thought for purposes of this podcast, the parallel I saw with boxing is all of these boxes that we fall in love with, in the end, the horse that we rode in on you know, with all the successes, we have to stay with that horse as it collapses eventually. And most of these guys never walk away when they should have. And this is a film that looks at that, looks at somebody dealing with all of their greatest moments being well behind them. And it's, it's a heavy, heavy film, but I think it's gained a reputation in a lot of circles as a masterpiece for very good reason. Um, and not least of which, Roger Deakins, working as a cinematographer on it, did some of his favorite work of his entire career. It's just an incredibly shot film. And uh, so I hope you enjoy Stephen Benedict and I discussing The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yeah, I, I can't wait to get into this film. What what were your impressions seeing this again? Uh, it's interesting that you should say, I mean, it, it bring in Terrence Malick, because the, it's not in the pacing of the story. It's it's this, the the communion with nature is very Malickian, if that's the proper term that we're, we'll be using. Um, the treatment with that. And also, it also reminded me a lot of Stanley Kubrick's work, particularly Barry Lyndon, the, the use of light in that as well. Um, I love this picture mm. um, for all the reasons why we mainstream audiences don't like these type of pictures. This, this, I'm not saying that this is the type of movie that I adore. This movie I adore. There are mm. other films that try to be like it. But what I find stunning about the movie is not only the visuals, but the use of the voiceover, which is so dry which reminds me a lot of Kubrick's work, particularly on and, uh, Barry Lyndon. And then also the absolutely incredible score by Nick Cave, um, which in actual fact, this, I, I, can't, I don't know the type, of, the type of instrumentation that was used on it. It sounds like a little bit like a xylophone. Or, um, and that, for me, harkens back to the score that um, Terence Malick used in Badlands. Hmm. But the brilliant thing one of the brilliant things about this movie is um, the, the use of landscape as, meta, as a metaphor for character. Yeah. The icy, the icy plains, the snowy plains, and then, you know, that nightscape which opens up the film. There's one of the most incredible, if not the most incredible, bank or railroad robbery 
we've ever seen in the in the movie. Um, and then the depiction of Jesse James is is a uh, is a depiction I'd never seen of Jesse James before. I grew up knowing or thinking that Jesse James is a great hero and a great outlaw, a Robin Hood type figure. And this is the movie that very very successfully dismantles that um, that mistake, that misconception that I had. I don't think that I've been to a film where I saw more people get up and leave than this film. <laughs> I can remember a few films where maybe it dragged on somewhere and one or two people got up. I'd say about half the theater left before this was finished. I've never seen anything like that. And I totally agree. Uh, I am one of those film snobs that think it's one of the best films of the 21st century. Certainly one of my favorites. The use of narration um how unexpected it is uh i hadn't read ron hansen's book that the film is based on i have read it subsequently it's some of the best narration i've ever heard like the most lyrical cogent um poetic and you're right you go into this thinking brad pitt has signed on to play jesse james casey affleck as robert ford and you're going to get uh, Bonnie and Clyde, you know, yeah. we're going to, we're going to get excitement and it's going to be thrills and we're going to see, you know, it's going to be like heat. It's going to be Brad right. robbing one place after another being this tremendous shot, you know, maybe a bit of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid boy. And then it starts off with the last heist of a train. Roger Deakins is the cinematographer here doing what he described as the height of his at the height of his powers yeah. with the depiction of this train arriving utterly mesmerizing and yet the incident itself is a complete failure yes and then we're into where the story really wants to go which is not about robbery or murder but the isolation of somebody with a, a kind of star-crossed suicide that is looming. It's a big theme. The, the elegiac tone seems totally tethered to him, to the title being a misnomer, that this yeah, is yeah. not an assassination. This is a suicide by Robert Ford <laughs> for Jesse James. And uh, I thought that is such a daring tone. And then I, I, I want to get back to some of your impressions of, of this but the meditation on America, on America's self-sustaining mythology, on quote-unquote heroes in America, as Robert Ford was depicted to be, despite being a serial murderer of 17 people. Um, Forgotten another another pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then this last stage of the film, even though originally it was intended to be four hours, in this two-and-a-half-hour version, the last 25 minutes after James is killed takes it in a direction where we go right at, I think, uh, the underbelly, the undercurrent of America in a way that informs a lot of where we are today. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, one of the, the, the reasons why we see why the movie opens with his last failed, last robbery, which is a complete failure. And we effectively see him in retirement. Right. Or certainly in a twilight. And he's trying to figure out what to do or to live up to a legend that he didn't really set out to, set out to achieve. Uh, perhaps it was foisted upon him. That's not to make him a tragic figure or to make an excuse for his behavior. I mean, he was a, he was a psychotic murderer. I believe he was suffering, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. He had sort of fought for the Confederate South. The um, the the men in his unit and the the men he followed uh, were killed in in battle, and he was deeply traumatized by that. And then sought to go and avenge their death. And so after that after that failed robbery, we see him literally sitting on the porch, and all around him. There's a sort of a corporatization of the West going on beyond the, the beyond his his immediate um, environment. Because when he goes to the towns, when he goes to the big cities, you see a, a thriving, bustling, emerging capital, businesses and pool rooms and 
uh, saloons in the way that we don't see in other westerns because it's always a one horse town we see it being built but when we go to that um it's thriving but then the detectives are after him and the detectives have been hired by the railroad to hunt him down okay which is the corporatization of the west right this is a business now we cannot afford to have um our our railroad constantly being disrupted by these quote robin hood type characters and the movie goes out of its way not to present him as a robin hood at all and the the irony then is that it's not corporate america or the emergence of the corporate class that finally secures revenge or brings justice to the doors of jesse james it's some it's some deluded fan who hunts them down to be to touch the cloak of fame and to bask in the reputation and then the tragedy for robert ford is you know where's my due why aren't you applauding me right <laughs> you know no, and that incredible that incredible line i mean there's also a kind of homoerotic undertone to a lot of the film bath scene yeah you you have a yeah the bath scene jesse james is lying in a big bathtub and he's confronted by this acolyte robert ford who's meant to be a 19 year old kid saying jesse james you can never find him without a gun and james just reaches over and lifts the newspaper to unveil a gun and, and i think cock the hammer used to be could no one sneak up on jesse james now you think otherwise I ain't never seen you out your guns, neither. Uh, leading to this line, I can't tell whether you want to be like me or be me. Can't figure it out. Do you want to be like me? Or do you want to be me? And that's where... That scene, I mean, apart from <clears throat> their relationship that's being depicted, it reminded me something about America and America's mythologizing and romanticizing of Jesse James, you know, and the West mm -hmm. and all of this. Um, South Park creators, I listened to Trey Parker talking about on South Park, you have children and you have the adults. And when they began the show, they've depicted themselves with, with the, the characters. But now after 20 years, they're not needing to perform as their parents and adjust their voices. They are their parents because they are in fact parents. Yeah. And they remark that there are no teenagers in the series ever. Yeah, no, they can't grow, no. They can't grow. And what I thought was it's true except for the storylines, which America is supplying. Right. Which are, consistently teenage oriented storylines because America is a perpetual teenager. Yeah, arrested development. Arrested development. It's invincible yeah. and it's really insecure and needs to remind itself a lot of how wonderful and great and the best that it is. It is a fascinating teenage complex that is totally arrested. And while America wants to identify with Robert Ford for all of his courage to be this you know, criminal and, and ruthless and all that kind of stuff. Wow, it's so colorful. On the other hand, it's much more in line with Robert Ford. It's not sure who it is, and it's clamoring to find that identity through somebody else and through romanticizing and mythologizing it and leaving out a lot of unpleasant facts. And, uh, you know, the celebrity culture that is, we've had these notable stalkers you know, John Lennon being assassinated, presidents being shot because of a Jodie Foster obsessive. Yep. Um, now we're all the obsessives. You know, now we're hunting down Amy Winehouse until she's dead. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think that 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 awareness informed Ron Hansen when he actually wrote the book, because he would have started the research. He, as, as far as I understand, he was researching for quite a while. Yeah. You know, as you're, as you're saying, you were quoting the assassination of, of um, John Lennon by a fixated fan. And then, you know, Jodie Foster being caught up in this very, very bizarre, I mean, so bizarre, you actually couldn't write it because 
you have to see it play out in real time to really understand what was going on. Um, you know, when um, when uh, Hinckley went to shoot um, Ronald Reagan, you know, and that fixation, you're absolutely right. And this is this is when we when we talk about Westerns, it's very, very difficult for them to rev to find new areas of revision because so many films have got there first. I mean, we were talking about Once Upon a Time in the West. We've spoken about Unforgiven, and we haven't even touched on Sam Peckinpah yet. But yeah. somehow, Hanson and Dominic found the new area to explore um, America's past, the mythology, and use that as as a prism through which we can examine ourselves today. And that's really the, the full the full benefit of a revisionist Western. It's not just to sort of say, to, to reveal the facts, because the, to, the truth is facts tell us nothing. It's our interpretation that tell us about ourselves. Right. Do you know what I mean? And, and that's, that's the wonderful thing about um, Dominic's picture. And you mentioned there, Bryn, that the movie, the, one of the original cuts was four hours long. What I'd just like to talk about here is the, the wonderful conglomeration of talent that surrounds the picture. Yeah. You know, um, and they're all supporting um, a movie that really from the outset had very little chance of making money. I mean, Warner Brothers, I think, ponied up because Brad Pitt had done them the favor of Ocean's 11, 12 and 13. And he was going to come back and make Troy. And he put so much money in their bank account that this was it wasn't a vanity project because this is not a vanity project in, in any way. But if you look at Brad Pitt, here's a guy who, who somehow he has this Teflon thing about his persona and his, his stardom and the movies that he makes, even when he makes a poor picture, people just forget it and forgive him very, very quickly and then go back to other stuff. So, you know, he goes out of his way to play a very, very, a character who's not designed to be likable, but designed to be really fascinating. Well, not yeah. designed, is, is endlessly fascinating. And if you just compare him to his peers for a second, I mean, you know, um, George Clooney and Matt Damon, I'm talking about the Oceans guys, and then, then compare him to a person who has never appeared in any of those films, and never will, it's Tom Cruise. And they're in around the same age. And they've been, you know, Cruise and Brad Pitt had been together in an interview with The Vampire. And Brad Pitt was on the rise. He was becoming Brad Pitt. Um, but this is a movie that Tom Cruise could never make. And I think it's a remarkable uh, testimony to, to Brad Pitt's fortitude as a star and as a, as a lover of film that he goes off and makes films like this. I mean, this guy has, he also was the producer behind, um, or his company was behind 12 Years a Slave. Yeah, right. Um, they were behind Moonlight. And, you know, Clooney has gone off and made some interesting films, and Matt Damon has gone off and made some interesting films. But Brad Pitt is the one who's delivered, I think, both in terms of character, his, the characters that he's portrayed, um, and he's never winking at the audience. I mean, sometimes when Matt Damon goes off and plays a fool or plays a, a guy who we find very questionable, he's almost sometimes he's winking at the audience. It's sort of, um, I'm only acting here, folks. This really isn't me. And that's definitely the case with Clooney. Yeah. Brad Pitt, I think, is a remarkable example of stardom because he's been able to utilize it so successfully and yet um, not repeatedly, but occasionally dismantle it. So it, it gives him a, a new re, a new lease of life. And I'm not talking about the, the, the uh, I'm not even referring to the collaborations he's done with Tarantino, you know, but then we also remind ourselves that Ridley Scott was behind this picture. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, Ridley Scott, I think, is a remarkable. I mean, I'm not the first to say this and we certainly won't be the last remarkable visual eye. It's just his, his ability to write the find the right way to, to shoot a scene, frame it, light it, use the lens and all that sort of stuff. And you would think that this would be his material, but it's not his material at all because he doesn't make movies at this pace. But what I love about these guys is that they go, it's not my, it's not my pace, but it's a movie I'd like to see. So we're going to back Andrew Dominic all the way. Yeah. And we're going to back him to the hilt when they go into argue with the studio executives. And I only discovered recently that um, when they were editing the film, Michael Kahn, who was Steven Spielberg's constant editor, who's been editing every single one of Spielberg's movies since um, since Close Encounters, with the exception of E.T., Carol Littleton edited that one. Michael Kahn has edited all of Spielberg's films, and he was called in to, to assist and to protect the long version of the film. Mm. Now, now, I don't think it was, it was ever conceivable that we're going to release a four-hour version. 
they were going to to reshape it and remodel, bring it down to maybe three hours. I think maybe the two and a half is slightly compromised. I'd love to see an extra half an hour in it. But here's the thing, Bryn. I, it's one of these rare instances where the film works better if it's longer than if it's short. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why so many people in your audience walked out. When I saw it, there weren't enough people in the theatre to walk out. I it was only myself and maybe two or three other people who were complete devotees. So there's no way we were going to, you know, wild horses couldn't have dragged us out of that theatre. It's, it's, it's hypnotic um, in, its, in its tempo and its emotion. But the beautiful delivery is, as you said, the third act. Suddenly the movie becomes something else. We just go, oh, this is all prologue. Okay, now, now we're into a completely different arena, you know? And the fact that Robert Ford, depicted by Casey Affleck, he says, you know, where's my prize? Where's my prize? You know, he's talking to Zoe Deschanel. It's almost as if she got with him because she was expecting more baubles and more furs and ermines. And he can't give them because, you know, Where's my reward? It's brilliant. And I think a lot of the tone and, and the surprisingness of letting the tone in as your reviewer to this is that it, our image of who Jesse James is is that we're watching a predator in action. But right. what we're really watching is a predator as prey for almost the entire film. Yes. Is that he has nowhere to go. He's being hunted. He is paranoid of everybody around him turning him in. There is a five thousand dollar bounty on his yeah. head. And you know, let's let's remember at the time of his death, April 3rd, 1882, $5,000 is a fortune, life-changing money. And also let's remember that Jesse James was so famous in American culture that Ford, within a year of killing him has a more recognizable face to Americans than the president of the United States. That's where celebrity culture was then at its infancy compared to where now. And a year after, I think less than a year after Jesse James was assassinated, you have the next version of sort of modern celebrity arriving with Oscar Wilde being with the paparazzi actually chartering boats to collide with his vessel on its way to New York Harbor. So, you know, it's that tone is definitely not one that I think your average Western goer is that interested in seeing in in a kind of somber, uh, almost maudlin, mournful march towards this. I, I, I mean, I agree with you what you were saying earlier. We shouldn't we shouldn't defend the exploits of Jesse James in terms of calling it tragic. This is self-inflicted tragedy, although I agree with you about the PTSD. But the other element of this that I think Dominic weaves in very intelligently, and you get a first hint of it when you see Jesse James with a couple of snakes chopping off their heads and he's just holding it in his hand, uh, watching them die, is the biblical allegorical elements to Jesus April the thirst third, the the day that he died is of course part of Holy Week, and this is a story of Judas. This is, <laughs> and you have Jesse giving a gun to his would be assassin. Yeah, it's like the kiss. Yeah, um, just like the piece of bread that Jesus gave to Judas at the Last Supper. You have uh, Robert killing Jesse for reward money. The pieces of silver, for the 30 pieces of silver for Judas. You have Robert washing his hands after finally deciding to kill Jesse James, which Pontius Pilate did after he agreed to execute Jesus. You have Charlie, Robert Ford's brother, committing suicide for his involvement in Jesse's death. Judas also hung himself after, after the crucifixion. And um, and of course, just the it being it, it taking place on the week of of Holy Week. Um, I found all of that was woven in with care. It was deftly done. It elevated the material, you know, without burdening it with something. But um, you know, to see somebody with Brad Pitt's charm and goodness. I mean, he's a white hat actor if ever there was. Um, embracing the darkness of this character, I, I mean, 
I'm not surprised at all that it's his favorite film that he's ever worked in. It's the favorite role he's ever been a part of. And for me, it's it's the best role I've ever seen him in. I mean, yeah. this this or Tarantino's most recent uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where he was also magnificent. But there's micro expressions in this that remind me a bit of De Niro in Godfather 2 or... We, Gary Oldman playing, uh, what's his name? God, it, it just escapes me. The assassin of JFK. Oh, yeah, Lee Harvey Oswald. Yes, Lee yes. Harvey Oswald. The way those performances are so profoundly charismatic and yet underplayed is a real rarity in yeah, film. Yeah. And Pitt, Pitt is offering you a palette that I've just never seen him use before in this film. Yeah, I think the, the crucial word is there is, you know, the charisma, but there's nothing seductive about it. And that is really, really hard. You know, they they make they draw us in through fascination, but they're not looking for us to love them. And that's easy. That's a very, very easy demarcation for an actor to spill over and to say, you know, let's let's really fetishize my behavior here and make me look cool. And I think that's one of the one of the reasons why it's an incredibly disciplined performance that, that Brad Pitt gives. Um, but, you know, it, as you're saying, it's also very, very subtle. But, you know, I hadn't actually noticed the religious references in the film until you mentioned them. And which means that they wear them so lightly. But they're, once, you've, once you said, once you mentioned them, listed them, went, oh, my God, how did I miss that? And so it shows that how beautifully integrated that they're able to, to weave their different themes. You know, because when I go to watch it again now, I'm definitely going to have a notepaper, a pad and paper go every time I, I think I see or sense something religious coming on. I'm going to be able to build up a, not, a nice long list though, just the way you did. But it's also, I think, part and parcel of it. The fascination with the film is the way it looks. Yeah. You know, and you mentioned Roger Deakins at the top there. And, you know, Roger Deakins at that stage in his career ha had not won the Oscar. And I remember when the movie came out, everyone says, surely now after 13 nominations or something, I don't know how many nominations he had received until that point, people said, surely now this is the movie for which he's going to win. And he had the misfortune to have his movie come out in the same year as the Coen brothers picture, No, no Country for Old Men, for which he had also served as director of photography. And his work on that was absolutely sumptuous, but in a completely different way. And then the movie There Will Be Blood comes out in the same year. I mean, we had a fantastic year in 2007 because I think Zodiac came out in the same year. Oh. I mean, that bumper crop that we got in 2007. But, you know, you're talking about the, the narration and it's lovely the way they integrated it into the, the visual fabric because I'm just going to give a little bit of a quote from the, um, from the, the narrator. He also had a condition that was referred to as granulated eyelids and it caused him to blink more than usual as if he found slightly, as if he found creation slightly more than he could accept. Then they say rooms got hotter when he was in them. Rains fell straighter, clocks slowed. I mean, that's beautiful prose. Beautiful. And it's completely mythologizing, but it's not mythologizing him because we know that such hyper, it's such hyperbole. We've got to question the authenticity of what the narrator is saying because the narrator was not witness to what was going on. But what I really liked about the picture is if you look carefully at some of the frames but what Deacons did was he incorporated um, lenses that seemed to be frayed and flawed around the edges. So you get this blurring on the edge of the frames like you do back in Jesse James's time in the stills photographs. So it's a beautiful suggestion of the recreation of it. Um, and that's part of the hypnosis of it and the, the slow pacing and just the wide shots, the way they position, they repeatedly position all the characters within these massive vistas. So we are aware that there's a huge wave, not wave, but there's a huge event of history happening and they're just part of it, right? You know, of course we get close-ups, but the proliferation of wide shots lets us know that, you know, these characters are being positioned by Dominic within history for a particular reason. And I think that that distanciation, keeping the camera away from them and seeing them in the landscape, is one way that the movie avoids the romanticization and the avoids the seduction, uh, where we, we, we're fascinated by the charisma, but we're never going to be seduced. I mean, you know, 
really, how can he be seduced by somebody who who has who coils snakes around his his wrist and then cuts their head? Right, Jeez. and and summarily executes all the members of his gang by shooting them in the back. Yeah. I mean, it, it moves into this otherworldly do- dimension where we're using my native Canada as backdrop. You know, this kind of Arctic tundra of Calgary and Winnipeg. Um, <laughs> But the scenes with him just riding with a horse behind his men of the last gang that he hired to do this ill-fated robbery. And you have a great supporting cast here. I mean, aside from Casey Affleck's Oscar-nominated performance, you have Sam Rockwell as Charlie Ford. You have Mary Louise Parker as as Jesse's wife. Sam Shepard playing his brother briefly. Paul Schneider, who's one of my favorite actors who just doesn't seem to emerge the way I think he will. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, character maybe, the time, maybe the time will arrive for him. But I think you're right. We're waiting for his time. He's got something, though. He delivers that poem. And uh, there's a tone and, and just a look in his eye. I remember seeing him first in George Washington. Had right. a brief cameo there. Yeah. Just I just thought, wow, this guy is so interesting. Almost yeah, Nicholson-ish in Iraq. There's just something about him. Uh, Jeremy Renner is one of the members of the gang. Garrett Dillahunt, who who also was in uh, No Country for Old Men, very funny performance. Um, James Carville has an odd cameo in this, yeah. uh, who's wonderful. Um, and I think you know that that wasn't stunt casting. That was brilliantly done because the fe- the second you see Carville, you go. That's a face that belongs in history, in, in that universe. And his delivery and his, and his tone of voice. And yeah, and then that he's playing a governor. Um, you just go, of oh, course. Maybe they did it because of the association with, with Clinton, we know. That we, but, but I think his performance, if you don't know who Carvel was in real life, you would simply, you still buy him as, um, um, I can't pronounce him, Governor Crittenden. Is that the? Sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and Ted Levine, famously from Silence of the Lambs, God, what, one, one will never forget that strip scene and then <laughs> in anything he does after. Apparently, when he improvised. That oh. was not the script, that was not in the book. And he says, I'll try this. And Jonathan Demi apparently says, what he told me, he says, I've got to show it to you in order for it to make sense. And he showed it and went, that's it. It's yeah. just fantastic but also you know the funny thing we were talking about with leone and the great the, the face-off between the two guys with the guns there's actually no shootouts in this film in the traditional sense you know no, so again they deplete it's it's not only are they giving us a, a new topographical view of the a view of history but they're depleting that landscape of the tropes that we expect from the western yeah you know where where is the bawdy saloon where are the the, the chorus girls that you know usually go with the dressing of these sort of films, and you feel the cold a lot in the picture. And I'm not only talking about the cold of the characters; I'm just talking about the, 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 that winter is really, really harsh. And you know, it reminds me, uh, for once, to just step into boxing about this film. Is this is a film to me the the ethos of it? Well, the pathos of it is the last fight of a great fighter. It's almost never, ever pretty. It's the one that everybody who loves the person wants to forget. And that's what this film is, is let's expand that short time into a full meditation about what this has meant. And it's the one that's omitted when you see the highlight package of of beloved heroes is their end. Uh, You know, how often do we hear about how Heracles died, you know, or... You know, Achilles a little bit. Achilles is definitely one, but even the name Achilles in combination of the sorrow of his people. You no, combine no. that and you get Achilles. I never knew that. So that's, it's, that's what his name means. That's what his name means. Wow. Do you? Oh, that's mind blowing. That is yeah. spectacular. Because just just in the etymology, you get the entire philosophy of what is is the purpose of his creation is. And that's exactly where Jesse James felt to me. And again, of course, Brad Pitt would go on, or sorry, had previously played Achilles. 
But yes. that was a ridiculous film. I mean, it has some fun fun in it. But uh, this is a real study of that darkness yeah. that's there. And I agree, PTSD is a big thing. And what do a lot of people with PTSD go on to do? Self-destruction. Yeah, yeah. And, top, of, top of the agenda. And, and we, for, we forget also, I mean, you, you point out, and I mean, this alludes to it, but it's certainly not overt, is... When we think about the Civil War, which killed close to 7,000 people in this country, which will probably surpass with COVID by about April, um, is that uh, there was a huge number of people that emerged from that badly injured on top of PTSD, but physically horrendously injured and horrendously addicted to morphine and cocaine. I didn't know that. Which is when they get this wonderful beverage, a medicinal beverage called Coca-Cola. Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. Cocaine is an active ingredient. And quickly after, when women wanted to drink it, um, they said, well, it doesn't have to be a medicinal beverage. It can be a refreshment. Right, okay. Wow, well, I never took that. Yeah, so, so it's, and why was Coca-Cola so popular? Because it was it was a drug being given to to drug addicts to yeah. junkies yeah, you know yeah. so this is just such a damaged era era in american history where this guy emerges from and then gets labeled by a journalist as a kind of robin hood figure despite no evidence that he gave a dime to anybody <laughs> yeah and i i think part of it, the mythology there Bryn, was because you know he he just sold that the railroad is an easy target and he went off the railroad. And I think for, I could be wrong was maybe I'm, I'm misreading the history there, but I think for the Confederate States in the South, the coming of the railroad would be as an imposition from the North. Right. Right. right? And so anybody who was sticking up the railroad was sticking it to the man, you know, and he's fighting for the South. And we, we see that quite, quite, quite frequently in the Western where survivors, uh, veterans of the South, of veterans of the Civil War coming from the South, um, they become heroic, tragic heroes, uh, and very, very charismatic and attractive characters in the Western. And I think the reason why we don't notice it that, that clearly is because in the wake of the Civil War, they give up their uniforms. We don't see them wearing the gray anymore. And because their their faces are like, they, 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 it, sorry, and because they're white, and because they speak English, and the accents isn't that important we don't notice that they're from south of the mason dixon line but if you were to do that in the similar thing for world war ii for example there's no way you could disguise um a veteran from the nazi army you right know, even if he gets rid of his uniform right his accent is still there he may look like an english act a little english person or an american but his accent's going to give him away and that doesn't happen in the western at all you know, so the, the mythologizing of of um, of uh, Jesse James is brilliantly delivered, and I like the way that you would um, you draw to the very very final fight of uh, of a boxer who's gone one round too many, and it, it, I'm reminded immediately of the tagline to No Country for Old Men that came out that year, and the tagline is "There's no there's there are no perfect getaways." Mm. In this, you know, in 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 the the landscape of boxing, there are very very few instances of somebody going out completely untouched. As you were saying, there's always one fight too many, and and as a consequence, that's where I think people start to attach the tragic aspect uh, to their personalities. I think it's sort of it's, it's almost like um, 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 a sea urchin attaching itself to a, a great fish, right? It, it doesn't really belong there, but we attach it anyway because this is the way we can explain away why Muhammad Ali went for those fights. It was just a tragic thing. No, was it really tragedy? Could it have not have been a case of greed or just? I mean, yeah. what about Floyd <laughs> going yeah. in this fight with this YouTube kid? Come on! No, you're right. It's greed, and and it's a culture that will support it. And I mean, that's another thing. As I was researching this, I was listening to the New York Times podcast talking about Joe Biden's new uh, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. And I'll, this, this will relate, I promise. 
But there was a speech that Blinken gave about his stepfather being a Holocaust survivor who was a little child who ran away after four years being in the camps, uh, ran away during a death march into the woods. And when he emerged from the woods, he saw a tank and at first was afraid that it would have the Iron Cross of the Nazis, but turned out to have a star. And the only English he had was something like, God bless America, or you know something, something about America. Um, and, and then he said, Blinken, that is what America represents to the world. Right. And I thought, well, however imperfectly, he said. And I thought, wow, that th this reaffirming re re notion that the entire world looks at America as World War II being a tank that is liberating Nazi camps, which it did. I'm not saying it didn't. But it also certainly represents every single war after World War II, which none of which succeeded. None of them have been popular. And I, I thought I would like to ask Blinken, what's the closest next example you have of what how Im America imperfectly represents, is representative? Like what incident would you use? And it made me think of Jesse James in this context of, you know, what is this... Is this representative of what the country would have the world know as is a venerated individual for their achievements? A ruthless killer who's robbing banks, who fought for the South to defend slavery? Yeah. It's, you know, and as this movie moves into its last act, after this painting looks dusty and he starts adjusting this painting of a horse. I could find in research no evidence that that was the actual painting that Jesse changed. There was a God bless my household uh, sign he had, which apparently is what he was straightening as a picture when Ford shot him in the back of the head. Um, but off we go to the body of Jesse James being put on a bed of ice. The cottage where he's assassinated immediately pilgrimages start to visit this house. People are coming from across the country to see where this great, quote unquote, hero has been assassinated. Soon, a thousand strangers were making spellbound pilgrimages to the cottage, or were venerating the iced remains inside Invaden's cooling room. The man who offered $30,000 for the body of President Garfield's assassin sent a telegram to City Marshal Annis Craig offering 50000 for the body of Jesse Woodson James so that he could go around the country with it. Or at least sell it to P.T. Barnum for his greatest show on earth. Well, that's like National Enquirer trying to get the photograph of Elvis Presley. Yeah. But we were going to literally, you and I are going to go, let's go visit Jesse James on a bed of ice. He's only been dead for nine months. This will be fun family entertainment. And, you know, you have him on that bed of ice in a photograph that was used in a stereoscope alongside the Sphinx, the Taj Mahal, and the catacombs of Rome so that Americans could look at the wonders of the world. And this is their contribution to that. Yeah what it says about this country, and I think very accurately yeah, yeah. about where it is kind of emotionally. Well, yeah, and I, I think um, the truth is that most countries that have gone through a civil war um, experience that sort of trauma. And we end up venerating very, very strange and unlike, we, have, we sort of create very, very unlikely bedfellows as heroes. And um, what makes America unique um, is that not every country that's gone through a civil war has gone on to become one of the most dominant countries in the world. Absolutely you know, true. It's trying to square that contradiction where it is a country that's born out of, its birth is, is, is discrimination, it's bigotry, it's genocide, and incredible violence, and then self-inflicted violence through the civil war. Um, its wealth, the cornerstone of its economic wealth, therefore its global power, is slavery, which means its its wealth is completely unjustly uh, um, uh, accumulated, and so this inherent contradiction, where it presents the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, 
which is integral, essential to its, its constitution. And yet it inflicts this terrible burden and wound upon other people and on itself at the same time. But the thing is, though, that we were talking about the, the liberating tank. I believe that America has much more successfully sold its idea of freedom or not sold, but presented its, its idea of liberty um, through entertainment than it has much more so than it did through the barrel of a gun or through a tank. And its products and cultural contribution, yeah. you know, Elvis, Coca-Cola, Disneyland, the movies. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I just want to add, it's also important that this is a movie about a killer, a murderer, homicide is this guy's <laughs> trade. But America at the same time, which is terrified of violence of this nature, yet obsessed with it, yeah. has almost triple the amount of suicides that it does to homicides. Unspoken secrets. And yet this is a movie purporting to be about a homicidal maniac who actually is overwhelmingly suicidal yeah. and yeah. damaged and traumatized. Yeah, but just com coming back to the, your point there, you're quoting about from World War II, you know, I think we've spoken about this before. Shortly after World War II is when America, where, where the population, there's a subtle shift to consider themselves as citizens and then they regard themselves as consumers. Yeah. Okay. And it's around about that time, I think, also when America had the choice of remaining as a republic and becoming an imperial power. And, you know, historically, we look back and it's true that maybe, you know, the greatest generation were the guys and girls who fought for the liberation and the protection of Europe. And, you know, yes, of course, they were protecting their vested interests across across Asia, but they were also, you know, fighting two fascist um, fascist empires. And in in this in it, in that hour of securing freedom and liberating so many so many people across the globe, it decides then yes I will become an an, an empire myself, um, and that I think is where we're you know one of the things about Jesse James I was saying to you about the corporatization of the Wild West. This is you know like we were watching Once Upon a Time of the West. The arrival of the train represents civilization and order and law and capital. And we're seeing we're seeing the same thing in a very very different way in Jesse James. But it's also as you said the emergence of celebrity. Yeah. And you know if you, if you are in thrall of a celebrity, it's because you're an adolescent, which brings us back to South Park. You know and it. It, it means that we we never grow up, which means we can have the toys and be violent without consequence. We can be irresponsible with all the fun and the gadgets. You know, and you were saying you had you had revealed to me the religious aspect of the story. Without you know, I've seen it several times. I think about seven, eight times, and that aspect was just it blew right through me without me even noticing it. But as you said, when Jesse James was um, assassinated, immediately his house became a point of pilgrimage. And again, that's another, that's another that's aspect. A good, that's a good one. I, it, you know, so it's, it, if any of our listeners haven't seen it, it's give it a go because it, it, it may be like trying in her patience, but it is such a rich story. Um, it's a familiar story, but the brilliant thing about Dominic as the director and Hanson as the author of the book is that they found riches and um, new ways of interpreting very, very familiar material and to, to shine a light on it, not only for our, our generation, Bryn, you know, um, celebrity obsessed, but I'm fascinated to see how it's going to play in 20 years, because I think it will still play in 20, 30 years. Um, there's something about its, its maturity and its self-confidence. Self that it knows that there's more jewels for us to unearth the, the more we go back to the picture. It's like when we look at The Godfather, it was the maturity of Coppola's direction that he kept it at a, at a, a very, very steady pace, knowing that, it, that we've got to go through, through this for three hours. We don't have to, if we go too fast, it, we, we'll stumble before the finishing line. And because of that, when we now look at The Godfather, it's it's not a gangster. Yes, of course, it's a gangster picture, but it's it's about the it's about the immigrant experience. Okay, it's about religion. You know, even just the opening speech. I believe in America. This is a prayer. Do you know? Um, America has made me my fortune. Capital. 
I raised my daughter in the American fashion, which means I'm an immigrant. But I taught her never to dishonor her family. Patriarchy. And he said it, it's almost as if Coppola and Puzo had set themselves four themes and they gave it, they listed off those four themes in those four opening sentences. And I think that the, the way the narration, as we said, it's beautifully dry in, in Jesse James' performances. I'm wondering, I'm fascinated because I'm, I'm quite certain in 20 years we'll be finding new material, new, uh, new jewels to find in this picture. Well, and I think two things, two things to what you said, I agree with all of it. Um, but he also says, I couldn't get justice for what was done to my daughter. This justice system was not served. Yeah. They did not protect protect her. And this criminal who violated my daughter yeah. uh, was smiling at me. In, that's right. Yes. And he said, and for justice, we must go for Don Corleone. Right. Meaning the, 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 this is a crime that the courts can't deal with. So we go into the, we go into the darkness of that of the study to right. to to find the justices and you hear you hear economists say the exact same thing about african americans not or or the wire for example yeah. is all about an entire group that is not allowed to enter the system there are all these systemic barriers to entry so what do they do they create their own economy yeah. and and there's wonderful wonderful books that i've read that economists have written that if you take take the inventory of uh, drug dealers who are operating on a mass level, it looks exactly like a McDonald's inventory of a franchising system. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> there was a book, Mac Mafia. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the other, the other point I wanted to make is this is also an examination of the dark side of what America looks at the sunny side of, which is individualism, yeah. is the pursuit of happiness, and be an individual, but what is it like on the other side of individualism? I think a lot of it leads to suicide. A lot of it leads to feeling isolated, disconnected. Um, you can, as, as you say, moving from a citizen to a consumer, buyer's remorse, that you can't buy your way into the life of happiness. And I think you're seeing with a mythological figure, and, and James says this directly to Ford, all these things you're reading about me are not true. Many's the night I stayed up with my eyes open and my mouth open just reading about your escapades in the Wide Awake Library. They're all lies, you know. Yeah, of course they are. Basically saying, I'm a man. I'm a man. I'm a flawed man. And nobody can see me for what I, for what I am. And, and what I am is somebody that needs to have a false name to even my children who don't know my name. So it's an extreme version of individualism in American culture. Well, I mean, and the, the dichotomy of individualism is inherent within itself is the entire idea of, well, not the entire idea, but part of it is the disconnection, right? Because it's the rugged individual who can make a difference or forge, forge a life of their own and pursue their own life, liberty and happiness and secure it. And how at the expense of others. So there's a disconnection right there. And so celebrity immediately brings that into play because you're living in this ivory tower, the gated community up on the hill away from the great unwashed. And that that doesn't it, it breeds desire and fascination and and adulation for a lot of people. But there obviously are other people who that fascination, it turns to a sickness, it turns to envy, it turns to anger. And that's really the tissue between the fan and the star, right? which is incredibly, incredibly destructive. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, um, the individual, do they create, do they help create a better, a better society, a more cohesive society, a more caring society? No, because with um, with Jesse James, you know, as you said, his kids can't know exactly who daddy is because that will unearth the really, really unseemly past. And the guy who's who seems to be who seems to want to be him or to be near him the most is the guy who really wants to kill him. And I found fascinating towards the that assassination sequence. It's very clear to me that the way Dominic staged it is that Jesse James is willing it to happen. As you said, it's a suicide. Thing. He looks at he looks in the reflection yeah. into the face of Robert Ford, and that's a total liberty on the part of Dominic. 
Yeah. But poetic license to me felt much more accurate to sort of what the facts are that we know. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, he was tired. Just please yeah. release me from this thing. You know? Yeah. He's a trapped animal. Yeah. Yeah. I just also just, I mean, I, I, I just love the imagery. And again, I'm going to go back to it. Just Roger Deacon's decision to, to, to fray the edges of the frame. So you get this distortion, which is a reflection of the way that Jesse James's character would have seen the world. And so we're, but we're not seeing necessarily the world the way he sees the world. We're seeing him within that, within that world. Yeah. Um, you know, and also you see, you see him standing with the sunset behind, with the, with the fields on fire behind him. I mean, there's your, there's your biblical image again. And now that, now that you, you've mentioned it to me, it's going to be hard for me to watch the movie the next time without um, being on the lookout for, and I mean, look, I don't mean that as a criticism. I'm thankful for the, what you've, the layer that you've now given me to, to examine the film. But again, it's another reason to go back to watch it, for, as I said, for the eighth or ninth time now. Just uh, It'll be fine wine. That's really what I mean. It's, it's aging beautifully, this picture. Um, you know, and the, as I said to you, that, the year that the movie came out, There Will Be Blood still holds up. Zodiac is still it holds up. There, um, there will be blood. These movies are actually getting better because they're pacing. It's, they're not, I think pacing has got to do with it. It's got a lot to do with it. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the title of your the podcast here, No Happy Endings, none of those movies have happy endings. No. And it, I, I was just going to say, you also referenced, you know, There Will Be Blood. I think there's a lot of overlap. Different industries but similar horses in terms of Daniel Plainview and Jesse James. Yeah. 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 Well, with Plainview, you definitely have the rugged individual who he, he admits, I have a competition in me, but I'm paraphrasing the next part. He says, I just don't like people. And, he, and there, Daniel Plainview is a prime example of a guy who's completely disconnected. The, the one who comes forward to, to claim that maybe his brother, now I know he's, he's, he's faking it, he, he murders him. He adopts a young child to, to pass them off as his adopted child and then abandons the child because, it, you know, he adopts the child because it's going to secure him more oil. And then he abandons the child because the, the, the presence of the child is actually preventing him from acquiring more oil. Well, and, and yeah, and the dueling forces of religion and oil fighting for the heart of the country. And yeah, he needs a child to pass himself off as a good family man to these religious folk, essentially the sheep of the country, following these titans of industry. And uh, no, it, 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 it seemed to reinforce a notion. I, I don't think it's cynical. I, I think it seems to sort of bear out in the country that we see that the probably the best prerequisite to ascension to the, the towers of power is having no sense of social responsibility, is being completely sociopathic. You know, as, as we're seeing in the psychological profiles of all the titans of industry with banking, you know, with trying to get into politics um, and the dissatisfaction that the public has with these people representing their interests, there is something about the DNA of Jesse James and, and I mean, Oscar Wilde also uh, stayed for his trial, for his own martyrdom. Yeah. That you know, was, he was offered, he was given the opportunity to advised by many of his friends, Oscar, go now to France. Yeah. And he, he, yeah, I don't know. I can't, under, I can't remember exactly his reasoning for staying. His mom, his mom. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. My son would never flee. Flee these charges. And uh, so, you know, those are the two first people that I think give us the DNA of the modern celebrity. And then it gets codified as Norman Rockwell is depicting all these people around to who takes over. Andy Warhol, when does he really take over? Yeah, the soup cans. But when JFK is assassinated the next day, he's working on his depictions of Jackie Kennedy. Of death, which is... Um, the really of death, the amount of black in those paintings, you know, that's oh, the most yeah. color. Mourning, yeah. Mourning, but also he did a huge series of suicides, accidents, yes. you know, tabloid photography of, yeah. of, of death, and a lot of it self-inflicted. 
And so I, I just found this, this film to be just a very brave exploration of a vein of where we see America going, just, just like there will be blood, um, but it's dark. And I'm sure it's way too dark for a lot of people where this just makes them very uncomfortable, but it sure felt very truthful to me. Yes. My, my only regret about the movie, and this is strange to say, my fear is that Andrew Dominic may have peaked with his second picture. What else uh, has he done? Uh, he made Killing Me Softly, which is a five-year hiatus, and then One More Time with Feeling, I think, a couple of years later. You know, but also I think it's a, it's a, it's a confluence of a number of things for many directors. It, you know, a luck, Paul Schrader says, never underestimate the element of luck. And he points to Taxi Driver because he says, I was in the perfect place to write that script. Marty was in the perfect place to direct it. And we had De Niro just on the perfect rise. And the three of us came together. So luck has a huge part to do with it. Um, but also the material. I mean, it's, it'd be hard really for anybody, I think, to come across material like this dealt with in this way by Ron Hansen's novel. Um, and, you know, Dominic, the great thing is that Dominic delivered. He didn't screw it up. You know, um, again, what I was saying to you, I, I love the fact that Brad Pitt went to bat for the picture. Obviously, he's starring in it. But, you know, Ridley Scott goes to bat for him and Michael Cann comes in to edit to protect a vision that, you know, it, it would have been lost in people. How many people would have would have um, regretted its demise? Not that many because we wouldn't have known about it, right. you know. Um, but they went in to say it's, it reminds you of that old moment in that one moment in Fitzgerald's un, un, um, uncompleted novel, uh, The Last Tycoon. And um, where, or, um, sorry, just give me a second. I've got to get the character's name. Monroe Starr, isn't it? Monroe Starr? Yeah, 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 yeah. Who's playing Thalbert? Yeah. Yeah. And thank you. So there's a scene in it where um, Monroe Starr, who is playing the equivalent of, of Irving Thalberg, says, you know, I think we owe it occasion to the audience, to the public, just to make a movie that's not necessarily going to make money, but it's just going to be very, very good quality. It's almost like an apology for the, the, the dross that we give you for the other 11 and a half months of the year. But this is the pearl. And, you know, it's also a romantic moment. It's a romantic gesture because it's a sacrificial thing. I know what this isn't for my benefit, but I'm doing it for you out of thanks. The, the stuff that you consume from me for the last 11 and a half months. And this is the one really that we want to be remembered for. And, you know, it's interesting you were saying that Brad Pitt considered his, regards as his favorite picture, his best performance. Roger Deakins, I think, holds the same uh, for the, the cinematography. And I wouldn't be surprised if Nick Cave looks back and says, yeah, I nailed it with that score as well. Oh, it's such a beautiful score. I, I, I'd say it's probably my most listened to music while I'm working on articles. And isn't, isn't that, uh, I, for me, that's, that is a, 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 a great um, accolade to assign a to a score is if you can listen to it separately from the picture. And because basically you're reconstituting it. You're saying the music still stands, but I can now play it in this set of circumstances and it still retains its beauty, but it's given me a different meaning, a, give, a different interpretation. A few that do that, one of them is for me is a Ry Cooter score for, for, for Paris, Texas, mm -hmm. for all slide guitar, which is just one of the most beautiful scores I've ever heard. Um, it's brilliantly done. And, you know, I think that's the thing is that each of those performances that you listed, you know, Sam Rockwell is brilliant. But Brad Pitt, and this is going to sound strange to the point of being pretentious, you can actually take them out of the picture and just inter interpret them or examine them on their own, divorced from what happens in the film. And it will still have its own meaning. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You, you, you can take that piece out, but you know that it's... It has meaning in and of itself. It's just, but you put, put it back in the jigsaw and it, it fits perfectly, but you take it out and you can still look at it and go, yeah, yeah, I know what this means. This yeah. has a meaning in and of itself. It has a function in and of itself. You know, Nick Cave's music is, wow. I mean, but who knew this movie was coming? I mean, had you heard of it? Had you heard about the publicity in advance? I hadn't. I'd walked in, literally walked in. I, I had seen a, a little trailer online and it's there's a number of trailers out there and i don't like any of them except one which is a 
and they used the music. I think Thomas Newman uh, had us had some music from Shawshank Redemption. Yes, and uh, you just and you just hear Robert Ford, and some of this is not in the film, saying Jesse James is bigger than you can imagine. You go to him wanting to be like him. You go you go to him wanting to be with him and wanting to be with him and wanting to be like him. And you always come away missing something. Right. And as soon as I heard that, I just thought, I don't know where this is going. I absolutely have to go see this opening night. Yeah. Because uh, this is not your typical fare. And I think this is what happens when outsiders look at American mythology and self-mythologizing and have a perspective that no American would emerge from this story with this perspective. An outsider would. Yeah, I think it's because, maybe it's because, Bryn, um, if you're American making this picture or a similar story, you are immediately compromised. It's yeah. very hard because you're, you're part and parcel, you're a product of that culture. And it's hard to portray that which created you, no matter how cruel the creation was or how unjust that system is that it's inflicted upon you. It's, it's inherently hard. It's And maybe that's the reason why so many directors who've arrived in America have been able to sort of show us things that other other American directors haven't haven't been able to. It's just a, a diversity of perspectives, you know, who, who are the ones who usually offer the most insightful um, perspectives on things that are right in front of the people who've been living it their whole lives. Just an outsider, you yeah. know. I, <laughs> If I have something on my face, it doesn't matter how intelligent I am, I can't see it without a mirror being held up. And that yeah. mirror doesn't have to be particularly intelligent to see it. <laughs> yeah, I love, love this film, and I am really looking forward to our next Shawshank Redemption, followed by Barry Lyndon. Thank you so much, Stephen. <laughs> Thanks, Brett. Thank you for listening to No Happy Endings, which is produced by George Alarcone Swaby. Myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and is presented by The Ring.